Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, and welcome to Kill Count. Before we get into the podcast, I just wanted to mention that The Invisible Man is now available on streaming. Back in our first episode, we did a deep dive into the 1933 original Invisible Man film, but we also had the opportunity to catch up with the director of the new film, Lee Winnell. We all really enjoyed this film, we thought it was a fun, fresh take on this original property, and if you didn't get the chance to see it in cinemas, it's now available on streaming, anywhere you watch your streaming films. So go and have a watch. And now, on to the podcast. It looks like something buried under the ice. Oh, I watched this movie way too young. Whatever it was, it was bigger than that block of ice you found. It's a thing imitating a dog. It isn't real. Get away, you idiots. Whatever it is, they burn it up in a hurry. Hello and welcome to Kill Count, the podcast that dissects the deaths in some of your favourite horror movies. Each episode will discuss a different horror classic and will attempt to remember the number of kills that occur and, vitally, the gruesome details of these cinematic slayings. My name's Mike, and I will be your Crypt Keeper for this week. Joining me, as ever, are my two co-hosts. Well, at least I think they're both here. They may just be alien assimilations, but who knows. Hello, Ali. Hello. You finally figured me out. <laughs> I knew it. Uh, and also, Dan. Hello, Dan. Hi, Mike. Hello. How are you? I'm great, uh, or at least I think I'm great. You never really... No, I was going to get some blood out and do some tests with hot copper, but we can get into that later. <laughs> and we also have a very special guest joining us this week, uh, a presenter, film journalist and film critic. She's currently the regular film critic for BBC Six Music Breakfast Show. She also happens to be my girlfriend and she lives with me. So given that we're both currently in lockdown together in a tiny flat, she didn't really have much choice. Uh, welcome, Rihanna Dillon. Oh. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. This is funny. We're talking to each other. We're in separate rooms in our flat right now. Uh, but thank you so much for joining it's us. It's a weird setup, isn't it? It is a bit of a weird setup. It's fun, though. We're literally <laughs> recreating the actions of the characters of the film we're about to talk about. Yeah. Rihanna was uh, playing computer chess this morning and smashing up a computer. Um... <laughs> so angry. So angry with that stupid... It always beats me. <laughs> Did you pour a glass of uh, whiskey or scotch or whatever it was onto it? As if I'm cool enough to drink whiskey. It was just Ribena. <laughs> so first of all, I should ask you, uh, Rihanna, tell me a little bit about... I mean, I already know this answer, of course, but tell us a little bit about your relationship with horror with the horror genre and with horror movies? Well, <laughs> so I will always say that I really am not a fan of horror. But then obviously since since having been with you for like the past five and a half years, I haven't really had a <laughs> choice but to watch every single horror and reassess my meaning of 
when I say I don't like horror. So I don't like jump scares, but I've always, always loved sci-fi. Sci-fi thrillers, I always called them, but I guess... I guess they're horrors as well, Mm. like The Thing, like Alien. And yeah, I think all those kind of those sorts of movies from the 80s and the 90s, um, I've kind of appreciated more over the years as opposed to some of the newer ones. I think we have a very different concept of what's scary. I don't like The Witch because I think it's pretty dull. Ah, I'm so sorry. But it's like one of your favourite horror films of all time and I just can't find the horror in it. Yeah, I think I really like those kind of slow burn building dread kind of horror movies. Uh, They scare me more, whereas yeah, you are terrified by the kind of James Wan conjuring (laughs) kind of Annabelle type movies, aren't you? Um, Which I'm not so into. So we do have different, we we have differing, uh, differing thoughts on horror, but I think we both found the same love and appreciation for this film didn't we we both absolutely love john carpenter's the thing yes 100 percent. i've always loved this it's it's a magnificent feat of filmmaking amazing um so there we go i've already given away what the film is we're going to be talking about this week but just to confirm it we are going to be covering john carpenter's the thing from 1982 12 men have just discovered something For 100,000 years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live, inside, where no one can see it, or hear it, or feel it. I know I'm human. Some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to, but it's vulnerable out in the open. It takes us over, and it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. So The Thing is a, is a sci-fi horror. It's directed by John Carpenter. It was based on a 1938 novella called Who Goes There by John W. Campbell Jr. And it was already adapted into a movie in the 50s, The Thing from Another World in 1951. So this is kind of the second adaptation of that story. First of all, Ali and Dan, I'd love to hear from you guys about what you think of it. Ali, what's your kind of history and relationship with this film? Well, I've made no secret of the fact that I'm a massive, massive John Carpenter fan. I mean, I've always loved horror and watched horror-esque things, but when I decided that this is my thing and I'm going to really look at horror and study it extensively, I look no further than John Carpenter because I feel like he's a master of the genre and he's created so many iconic things throughout his career. Um, But I think actually, arguably, The Thing is probably, even if it isn't my favorite Carpenter film, I think it might be his greatest work. I think, as you said, Rihanna, it might be his greatest directorial attempt. I think he creates something that, even if you're not a fan of horror, if you're not a fan of sci-fi, it brings something for everyone. Um, so for me, it's it's one that I've returned to many, many times over the years. Totally. Uh, Dan, what about you? Are you a Carpenter fan? And where do you think, where does the thing sort of rank for you in his filmography? I am a Carpenter fan. I, I think the only real contender in my eyes for with the thing is Halloween in terms of Carpenter's best work. Mm-hmm. He obviously made those two movies at different points in his career. And I think you can kind of tell when watching the films I honestly couldn't choose between them. It's a bit like saying which child do you prefer. I don't want to say it, really. Let's take the easy option and say I love both of them. I think the thing is honestly like heavyweight, grade A, platinum horror. I think it's up there, really, really up there, and like the best 1% of horror films ever. Um, it's also one of the 
first horror films I ever watched, actually. Oh, wow. Um, I think, we, we, yeah, we discussed this a lot in the podcast, but I, I feel like this is universally a point that is made when people say, like, oh, I watched this movie way too young. I don't know how I watched this. I don't know how my parents let me watch this. That was the thing for me. I don't know how I watched it that young, but it happened and I loved it. Oh, wow. Did it terrify you? Do, do, I mean, do you find this film scary in general? It freaked me out. I think there might there may be a distinction between being freaked out and being scared because uh, we'll definitely get into this. But some of the kills, some of the special effects, the weird little like veiny blood vine things thrashing mm. about, that just freaked me out. And also, I didn't expect it. I didn't know that things could be done with practical effects and be so uh, just like give you this tingling sensation. Yeah, agreed. Um, Rihanna, you've already mentioned that, you know, jump scares and that kind of stuff really scares you. Does the thing actually scare you? Do you find it a frightening movie? <laughs> I think that's why I, I love it so much, because it's not about the jump scares. It's about the building tensions and then the payoff of, you know, the monster, the thing emerging in whatever way. And, and that I love watching unfold. Those are some of my favourite parts of the film. So it's not about being scared. It's about, it's freaky and it's gross and it's horrible, but you just can't tear your eyes away from it. But it's not something that I would have nightmares about. Interesting, interesting. Okay, all right, well, let's get into it then. Um, so uh, first of all, I'm just going to quickly remind everyone of the rules in case anyone's listening for the first time. So each week, the host or the Crypt Keeper, which is me, gets to pick the film we discuss. Before recording the podcast... I, as this week's Crypt Keeper, told my fellow co-hosts would be covering The Thing, and without re-watching the film or looking up any information, they gave me their predictions for how many kills they think occur in the film. So for anyone who got the correct answer, they will receive one point, and if nobody got it right, I, as this week's Crypt Keeper, will earn a point. And I believe me and Dan and Ali, we're currently all neck and neck on two points each so far. Is that right? That is correct. That is right. Oh, okay. So this could make or break it. So let's remind ourselves of what predictions you guys all gave. So first of all, Rihanna, how many uh, kills did you predict occurred in The Thing? I predicted 14 and that was when you asked me after I'd just woken up <laughs> five days ago. And that was the first number that came into my head. And not a huge amount of thought went into it. I'm just going to say it. I think it was a pretty good guess, actually, because I literally <laughs> I literally did. When, Do you want to go on this podcast? And Rihanna's like, yeah, great. And I went, right, tell me how many kills happened in the thing. Now predict it. And she went, ah, 14. Um, I think it's pretty good going, actually. Um, and Ali, confirm for us how many kills you predicted. I went a little lower. I went with 10. And and I think, in retrospect, obviously, I think it was too low. But I think it's because even though there's so many, so many characters in this film, they do such a good job of creating an identity for each one of them that I almost, when I'm remembering the film, I remember less people because I'm remembering people really vividly. If that if that makes sense, yeah. And so that's why I've actually gone with with ten because I I was almost thinking to myself, oh, the camp isn't more than like seven men. But then rewatching the film, I discovered that was not the truth. <laughs> I know. Isn't it so funny? It's like we never learn because we always, I think we all so far every episode on this podcast have kind of under predicted, haven't we? And we've gone, oh, right. All of these people die as well. Uh, Dan, what about you? What did you go for? I also went 10. You did? With, with a different approach, though, because in the last episode, we realized that we, we always need to add just a little bit more because we're always slightly, as you said, Mike, under-predicting. Mm. So 10 was actually my prediction with a little bit more added. Interesting, <laughs> interesting. As, as always, I've no idea how it's going to go. 
Okay, so we've got 10 from Dan, 10 from Ali, and 14 from Rihanna. Um, I will tell you, this one, of all the ones I've hosted so far, has been the most difficult one to kind of land on what number, because there are people that die and then are kind of assimilated and then they die again there are animals there are there are characters that died before the film start uh, so i'm just going to say it now i have only counted human deaths that happen between the the time the film starts and the time the film ends okay and that's it because i needed to try and come up with a rule for myself and keep it simple and clear i respect that i respect that so you never know you guys might have done better than you think um let's see so at the film starts the first thing we see actually is a spaceship flying towards earth it's the opening shot of the film with the title card then we find ourselves in the middle of an antarctic winter in 1982 the first thing we see is a helicopter of norwegian passengers pursuing and trying to shoot this gorgeous looking dog running through the snowy landscape they chase the dog towards an american scientific research facility and home to our main characters a group of 12 all-male researchers. The group includes, there's lots and lots of people, but some of them, uh, they include Windows, the radio operator, Blair, the biologist, Copper, the doctor, Niles, the roller skating cook, Childs, uh, the tough and slightly grumpy mechanic, Gary, he's the kind of boss of the group, and most importantly, helicopter pilot McCready, played by Kurt Russell. Rihanna, are you a Kurt Russell fan? <laughs> you know I am. <laughs> <laughs> I love Kurt Russell so much. I just think he's, not only is he a beautiful, beautiful, hairy man, in this but also he's a perfect action hero but he is the most clothed action hero in the thing you know it's like he couldn't have more layers on and he still <laughs> manages to just exude this incredible like masculinity uh, I love him so much was that what you asked I've forgotten <laughs> <laughs> yeah no and I, I to be honest I can't blame you for any of that I have the ultimate ultimate man crush on on Kurt Russell as well uh, Ali what about you do you share our feelings for Kurt yeah 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 I'm all over it <laughs> I can't wait to hear Dan's response to this. I know. <laughs> and what about you? Well, I was hoping to get an invitation to this little uh, Kurt Russell meetup later because I'm, <laughs> I'm firmly in the group. It's it's crazy. I always picture him as like a snow cowboy in this movie. Yes, yes, that's a great description. He's got he's got that masculinity, and he's also the fact that he's surrounded by these scientists but he's just kind of like the helicopter guy that is really at the forefront when we get into the thick of the action later because he's just this macho kind of 80s version of John Wayne, but with like aliens and snow. I love it. I know, <laughs> so cool. So uh, continuing with the story then, so our group of main characters witness this helicopter circling their camp and chasing this dog. And then we have our first kill of the film. Ali, any ideas of our first kill? I believe that would be the poor Norwegian. It would be the poor Norwegian. Slightly stupid, slightly clumsy Norwegian who prepares to kind of throw a grenade at the dog, I guess, and just kind of clumsily drops it as this other Norwegian then tries to kind of bury it in the snow and blows himself up. It! It! So 
so there we go already our first kill and in a way it kind of feels like we land in the middle of a film we've got this kind of weird shootout explosion happening outside um how do you find it rihanna as just an opening of a film the way that we're just kind of dropped into this situation i think it's such a brave thing to do there aren't many films which have the balls to just drop the audience in like you say into the middle of the action and we find out later on obviously just how much action has already sort of happened before the film's even started I think the idea that we have these two factions and we are obviously aligned with one the Americans and and we sort of see a little bit of their personalities and what's been happening there but then with the Norwegians coming in and the fact that no one really has any idea at that point what's going on unless of course you're Norwegian and you can understand what the Norwegians are saying in which case you know the entire plot of the movie just out of interest does anybody know what it is that he yells in Norwegian at this point well I actually speak perfect Norwegian so I'm so glad you asked <gasps> do you really <laughs> no I'm, guys come on what are you come on. <laughs> oh my god I really believed that for a minute I was like this is amazing I do not I don't even speak a word of Norwegian <laughs> come on um but I I do think I know what he says um just from a bit of trivia knowledge doesn't he say uh that's not really a dog. Yeah, yeah. So I'm pretty sure the, the the exact translation, as much as I've looked up, I mean, I don't speak Norwegian either, but it's it's get the hell away. It's not a dog. It's some sort of thing. It's a thing imitating a dog. It isn't real. Get away, you idiots. <laughs> they weren't betting on a lot of Norwegian viewers then. Definitely not. <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. Um, and then almost instantly, we have our second kill. Dan, any thoughts as to who this second kill is? Uh, I would guess it was... The- this shouting Norwegian guy. It is. It is indeed. It's the shouting Norwegian. He shoots at our American characters and then they shoot back, shoot him straight in the head, in the eye, I believe, actually. Uh, So we've got two dead Norwegians straight off the bat there. The scientists and researchers collect these two guys' uh, bodies. They put the helicopter fire out and Clark, the dog handler, adopts this poor defenceless husky. We later see this dog quietly wandering around the station and into a room where somebody is sitting, but we only see their silhouette, so we're not sure who that is. Meanwhile, Copper and McCready travel to the Norwegian base and find a whole scene of carnage. Again, a bit like a whole movie has already happened. Dead bodies everywhere, a steaming carcass of something. It might be human, it might be something else. They decide to take this carcass back to the base and examine it. And I guess this is a good time really to open the conversation about the practical effects. The special effects were done, I believe, what's his name? Was it Rob Bottin, I think? Rob Bottin? Yeah. Yeah, so the special effects were done by Rob Bottin. Dan, we've talked a bit about practical effects um, already on this podcast with Cronenberg and Mm. American Werewolf. Um, How do you think the practical effects kind of stand up in this film? Yeah, we should just rename this podcast the Practical Effects Podcast because we just gravitate (laughs) towards that every time. Yeah, this, again, I think I said it in the American Werewolf episode that the thing is maybe my favorite special effects ever in a horror movie it's insane and i think uh the backstory with rob botton as well who i think was like 22 years old he was responsible for all these effects it's it's insane and i think uh if i remember correctly he, uh he had like pneumonia and an ulcer 
and he had to get um, hospitalized and treated. And um, so, yeah, this 22-year-old Robotin just delivered and then some. It's it's crazy. When we saw this uh, kind of weird mutated head thing, me and Rihanna, when we were re-watching it last night, we were like, God, we'd love to just have that model. <laughs> it's just so <laughs> cool. Um, Rihanna, what do you think of the effects? Because like, they're kind of grotesque, but also kind of beautiful in a way, aren't they? Aren't they? They are. They're stunning. And yes, grotesque, obviously. But it's just, like I was saying earlier, the imagination that has gone into these it's so clever it's not limited by what cgi can do or how effective that is it's just the way that just the way that you see the human body split even and the way that it comes apart and the fact that that isn't even repeated you know you see like what the head split open in that i think it's like quite early on which is really horrible. You see these eyeballs kind of coming to the fore and being pushed out of the socket. And then later on, you see like the stomachs opening and something emerging from that, like alien. And especially when the head morphs into some sort of giant spider crab thing. (laughs) Yeah, we'll come to that. So later that night, their new adopted dog is kipping in with all the other dogs in the kennel and then something happens, doesn't it, Ali? What happens at this moment in the dog kennel? Oh, well, I just have to say, I feel like when a dog dies in a film, it hits everyone harder than, the, than when men die. I think... I think also there's like several websites dedicated to did the dog die in this film? So you don't have to put yourself through the brutality of watching a film where there is a dog death. <laughs> Unfortunately, in the thing, there are several of them. Um, so this this cute little husky just transforms into something otherworldly. And I, I don't know how many of the dogs it manages to kill because a few do escape. We never see them again. But no, it, it completely just transfigures into this horrible, just as you were saying before, Rihanna, it's just there's never the same trick twice in this film in terms of the practical effects. It's like you have this husky head with just these tentacles and, and all this madness. And I think also what's really beautiful about this scene is the practical effects are really well crafted, but they've been really beautifully married with the choice for cinematography and the lighting. So you can play to the strengths of, oh, maybe this won't look good in harsh light. Or um, I think the fact that it's kind of all shrouded in darkness and you're in this cage it it just adds to the the, the tension and the the horror oh god 100 percent. this scene really really freaks me out and you're right like you guys said like rihanna said this this thing can look like anything it can take any form and just seeing that dog kind of turn itself inside out and all of those tentacles and it's spitting that liquid and then it starts to kind of scuttle around on legs it's absolutely amazing it's like it's kind of like if you imagined a child to draw a picture of a monster and it had <laughs> tentacles and tongues and bits coming out of it. It's like, again, I just love that this could look like anything and do anything. And it's, it's yeah, it's just absolutely amazing and grotesque. And you kind of feel the same way as the characters do, because sometimes the characters just stand and look at this thing. And uh, <laughs> we'll probably come to that in later scenes. You think, why aren't they doing anything? But sometimes you just want to sit and look at these creatures and this creature design, right? Uh, so sadly, and I, I'm, I apologize to all the dogs out there because I'm not really counting the dogs as characters and as kills. So we've still not had any more kills officially yet. Our main characters come into this kennel. Uh, they try to shoot this alien dog creature and it starts to scuttle away. Luckily, Childs comes in and is able to torch it with a flamethrower. So this thing obviously has, has a weakness for fire. So that's good to know. Blair does another autopsy on this alien dog thing. 
And he deduces that this thing is able to imitate other life forms. So they realize that this thing can look like anybody and anything. And suddenly at this point in the film, kind of paranoia and suspicion starts to creep in. And I guess, you know, we've talked all about the horror. We've talked all about the monsters. But Rihanna, what do you think of this film in the other sense that it's this kind of paranoia thriller as well I suppose at this point yeah it's really interesting isn't it how quickly they do turn on one another I was quite surprised you sort of imagine them being a very tight-knit group but no they are very very quick to divide yeah and you see all of these like insecurities come out you see all these hatred is the wrong word but I guess after you've been locked up with someone for two months not you obviously darling but you know <laughs> that that hatred intensifies so so you know we see like at the beginning oh god i'm so sorry i'm not gonna remember everyone's names but i think it's is it bennings and Knowles or something mm-hmm. and there's obviously like a tension between those two and then later on you see how that affects people's paranoia and how they are very very quick to point the finger at other people whether or not there's any evidence for it or not so yeah i think that's really it's a really interesting insight into what happens to these very very intelligent men um once they're put in this very stressful situation yeah they go back to kind of machismo kind of aggression don't they ali it probably goes without saying this is obviously a super male film i mean this is like uh, this is probably going to be the first film in the series we've discussed that has an entirely male kill count how important is that to you and is it a problem for you even that there are no women in this film and that it's entirely about men um well i would like to point out that the one time we do even have any semblance of a woman in the film is in the chess wizard at the very beginning and i believe that that is John Carpenter's wife at the time who voices that character. Love it. Um, Love it. Which is just a fun little bit of trivia. And she she outsmarts McCready, right? She wins the game of chess. Exactly. Yes. Exactly, Dan. <laughs> she does. And he's such a sore loser about she it. She does. He is. <laughs> um, I'm not as bothered by that because I feel like... I mean, I don't feel like this film is trying to be anti-woman. I feel like this is a specific story about a specific group of people. And I also feel like, if anything, it kind of comments on the nature of how men are are conditioned to perform in certain situations and the idea of having to retain masculinity and to not be emotional and to not show fear or or any kind of emotion, really, and how that how the rules that they've probably societally been expected to follow their entire lives just completely fall to shit when they are met with this thing from another world. So for me, it's actually elements of the patriarchal society are definitely playing into this film, even if women aren't present at all. Definitely, definitely. I agree. I think it's really it's really looking at men quite literally in a sort of Petri dish, isn't it? Under a microscope, it feels like. And speaking of, I mean, they run a little computer program at this point and kind of come to the conclusion that if this thing spreads, it can pretty much infect the world within a number of days, I think, or something like that. You know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to spread to how many hundreds of thousands of people, kind of COVID style. Uh, so they realise that this thing needs to be contained and kill as quickly as possible. And at this point, when Windows and Bennings are there putting the kind of two-headed corpse into storage and are sort of covering it over. And they don't see that this corpse still seems to be showing some kinds of life, some signs of life. And at this point, we have our third kill of the film. Dan, any ideas who the next kill is? I'm actually struggling. It's 
not the one that's like out in the little in the open in like that little courtyard, is it? Well, it kind of is. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one, and this is where everything gets a little bit vague and ambiguous in terms of who dies and when. Because at this point, we have uh, Windows kind of leaves the room, and when he comes back in, Bennings is sat there in the chair in the corner, and he's being assimilated. He's got those tentacles all over him, and he's being sort of replicated. So we can assume really at this point that Bennings is dead, and at that point, that's when this Bennings thing alien thing runs out into the snow and we have that amazing kind of moment where he he's kind of not completely finished replicating and he's got that alien hand and he lets out that kind of screaming noise and we have that realization that of course this this thing is can also obviously perfectly replicate humans it isn't Benning. what do you think of this particular moment and this kind of alien man in the snow it's quite an iconic shot in this film isn't it yeah and it's also because it's the first of the men to uh be turned into the thing it's it's touched them now it's it's not just outside of them it's not just the dogs they really cement the idea that they can't trust each other because really any of them could be the thing so i feel like it's it's this really kind of pivotal turning point in the film as well it is it is and at this point in the film the pacing really kind of cranks up. So we're about to get sort of one kill after the next in pretty quick succession from this point onwards. So at this point, the the madness and the paranoia has really kind of kicked in. And Blair, the sort of biologist character, he really loses the plot at this point. He has sabotaged the helicopter and he starts smashing up all the radio equipment. So Max sedates him and ties him up in his little uh, observation tower outside. They sort of keep him away from everybody else. One member of the group called called Fuchsias, I think, has gone missing. And when Mac and a couple of the others venture outside into the snow to look for him, they discover something. And this is when I'm saying we have our next kill. Again, it's quite a tricky one to decipher, but Ali, have you any ideas who the next kill is at this point? Oh, is it the guy who has a heart attack or he seemingly has a heart attack? We're very nearly at that point. And this is one that you could very easily forget because technically the kill has kind of happened off screen but is it Blair it's not Blair they go out to find this guy called Futures uh Futures I think his name is and they just find this kind of burnt remains and this pile of clothes out in the snow so we see the kind of aftermath and no one really knows what happened to him and they don't know and they said he could have been uh, infected by the thing he could have accidentally been burnt in a fire he could have burnt himself when he knew he had been assimilated and they they kind of come to a few different conclusions but we will never know what happened to that particular character how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Is it Dukes? Yeah. But they also find some of Mac's torn clothes mm. outside, leading members of the group to believe that he may also be a thing. This is the point when everyone really starts getting super aggressive towards each other. Some of the guys are getting ready to corner Mac. Mac is holding some sticks of dynamite and a flare, and he's kind of threatening to blow up the whole place if they shoot him. And then at this point, in the middle of this giant struggle, we have another kill, our fifth kill. Rihanna, any guesses as to who the next kill is? I would have absolutely forgotten about this one, but thankfully Ali has just reminded me <laughs> it is the guy who has the heart attack or supposedly has a heart attack. Yes, indeed. That's breathing! One time attack. Get him in here and bring the others. But then you don't find out, do you, and that he's... Uh, the thing until the doctor is performing exactly, exactly. <laughs> CPR on him. <laughs> but I think as much as we know and as much as we can tell, I think actually we could believe that this is Norris. He really does just die of a heart attack. Like he, that's it. And, and whether or not that has something to do with the fact that, yeah, we later find out he has the thing. I reckon there's probably a connection, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it could be, it could be. But he does seemingly actually just die of a heart attack at this point. Yeah. So that's our fifth kill. And we're about to come to some of the best stuff in the film. But before that, I want to take a little break at this point, uh, and we're going to go, before we get to all of the carnage in the thing, let's go over to Ali for our B-movie of the week. Um, so I decided to go with a classic that I am a massive fan of. I'm sure you guys will at least have heard of this. I'm going with Ghoulies 2. Oh, Ghoulies 2. I don't think I've seen oh, this. What? Oh, Mike. Oh. Mike. You've got to, Dan is already rolling his eyes. I can tell. I can sense it from where I am. So this Ghoulies is part of a franchise. I believe there's four films in total. And the fourth one's called Ghoulies Go to College. So you can see where the, the quality levels go. The first one is a bit of a weird one because it's 
isn't, it's more about the occult, but they happen to have these kind of gremlin-like puppets in it. And I think when people saw the film, that's what they took away from it the most. The, the first film was released in the mid-80s, and then Ghoulies 2 was released in 1987. So it's riding that wave of gremlins popularity, for sure. It was directed by Albert Band, who he and his son, Charles Band, are pretty much known for creating tons and tons of B and maybe C and D level movie schlock going as far back as like the 50s all the way up until um, till now with his son still working. So yeah, the premise is that there's this failing carnival and it's being taken over by kind of a greedy businessman and they only have one more night to put on the carnival show and raise all the money they need. But then there are these, these, little, these little ghoulies that have stowed away and have become part of the carnival. And when people start arriving for the show that night, they begin to slowly kill not only the carnival workers, but by the end, even the people who are coming just to visit the carnival and it it just descends into complete madness there's like a giant ghoulie at the end stomping around like godzilla <laughs> i think the, the most fun thing to take away from this is that the original film for whatever reason the poster had a ghoulie coming out of a toilet but the original film did not feature any ghoulies and toilets which is a spoiler i'm sorry Same. but um <laughs> but what, what happened was they got so much criticism about this that in the second film, they specifically make a ghouly uh, toilet scene where a man, presumably his his bum is bitten off by a ghoulie. We don't actually see it on screen, but it is heavily implied. <laughs> so, I mean, if this hasn't convinced you to watch this film, you can get you can get the first two films on a double feature DVD. Uh, I will I will lend it to you because I own it. Oh. That sounds... Um, Rihanna, maybe we could watch the Ghoulies films together at some point in lockdown. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> oh, thanks, Ali. Oh, I can tell you're over the moon about that. <laughs> what a great recommendation. <laughs> you're welcome. Amazing. That is a great recommendation. I will seek that out. Thank you very much, Ali. Okay, this is where shit really hits the fan in the thing at this point. So Norris has just died of a heart attack and Copper, the doctor, is trying to resuscitate Norris with a defibrillator. Dan, what happens next? So the doctor, defibrillator in hand, goes towards putting the pads on the chest. Then the chest opens up with these teeth as well, I believe, and his hands plunge into the chest. The chest closes, bites off his hands, and then chaos ensues. So good. This might be my favourite kill scene of any horror film ever. think of this whole sequence with a defibrillator oh man it is it's it's like the climax of well it's not the climax of the film in terms of the plot but it does feel like the special effects scene that is best remembered from the film absolutely and actually weirdly like rihanna what do you think of this scene sort of tonally because it feels like in some ways it could be laughable because it's so extreme and so over the top and these creature designs are so over the top is it still a kind of frightening scene in that regard or is it more that you're just marveling at the effects it's everything because you are marveling but at the same time you're screaming at the tv 
You're so <laughs> like involved in the action, and when this happens, this sort of like this deep cavernous mass just opens up beneath this doctor, and it's so. And also, you feel a real empathy by this point, I think, for this doctor because he has been working like flat out, and the death of this character has sort of brought everyone back together again as well. It's it's like everyone sort of put their fears about the thing aside for a second just for like humanity's sake of helping this guy hopefully get through his heart attack so to then go from that to then this horrendous <laughs> but brilliant scene which as you said is just it's it's really all over the place there is so much to look at but you know this is this feels like a real climactic moment that was our sixth kill of the film that was the doctor copper who had his arms chopped off obviously um by belly teeth and then shortly after that there is another kill at this point the sort of paranoia has escalated even more they're all turning on each other Ali any idea of what this next kill is yes I forget his name but it is actually one of the few deaths in the film that isn't an alien assimilation it's I believe it's McCready he's still trying to convince everyone to do the blood test and they still believe that he might be the thing and this guy lunges at him with a knife and he shoots him. Yeah, it's just straight up murder. It's self-defense, <laughs> come on. It is It is self-defense, very true. Clark lunges at him with a little knife and is shot in the head instantly. I guess you do. So then we move to the blood test scene. So this is where McCready now, who's kind of in charge at this point, has tied some of the members of the group to a chair and he has got little Petri dishes of all of their blood and he is about to test who might be a thing and who isn't. He has a theory that because this thing seems to exist alive in every single cell, like why was it that a head was able to sprout legs and crawl around? He believes that every single cell must be alive in some way so that even by burning their blood that blood might be able to feel pain if it's a thing. So this is the incredible blood test scene, probably one of the most famous scenes of the film as well. Uh, Dan, what do you think of this particular scene and what makes it work so well? I think this is one of the most cinematic um, in like an old school sense scenes in the movie and like a Hitchcock uh -huh. sense. Um, it feels very Hitchcockian, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's all about suspense, really. And I think fundamentally it could work as a short film just this little snippet, mm -hmm. I think it would work perfectly because it's so simple. Like one by one, we're going to test the blood. And uh, if something freaky happens, then this guy is uh, assimilated and we're going to take action. But yeah, I think it's, it's quite good to juxtapose this with the doctor because that is just like off the wall craziness yeah it's it is like a masterclass in suspense and and payoff isn't it in a way i think you get a lot of horror films that you might say have brilliant suspense but maybe not much gore or on-screen stuff and you get a lot of horror films that are the opposite that are filled with gore and monsters but maybe don't have that fear and suspense and the thing seems to pull off both in equal balance i think doesn't it which is mm. incredible it's why it's such a classic rihanna what do you think of this scene and what about the way in which something we haven't really talked about but there's been no music virtually throughout this whole film and this particular scene even at the moment when the shit really hits the fan there's absolutely no score or anything do you think that adds to this moment yeah it's so interesting isn't it because music is is you know so often um used to build that suspense and that tension but if you look at some horror films which are just thick with that yeah suspense um like well even like under the shadow i think barely has any music in and yeah as you were saying hitchcock like rear window it 
does such a great job of just letting the human panic and that you can you can basically see it you can see it in their sweat you can see it in their eyes you don't need the music to build up any more fear by that point because you're so in it so I think it's incredibly effective that they don't use Ennio Morricone at that point what's so masterful about this scene is that you only have that one climactic moment only one of all of the bloods that they test is the thing and you're expecting with each petri dish for something to happen even if you've seen this a million times you sort of you're sort of waiting for it to rewrite itself because it can't just be that one you don't remember it as just being one and you're feeling the tension of all of the characters who are tied to this one and it's it's so so clever it's so simple as you were saying a perfect little snippet in its own right um although the one thing that did always slightly annoy me about this is when the blood screams it's like how does blood have the capacity to scream that's the only thing it's sci-fi it's sci-fi come on but it always makes me jump and you're right you know i i feel like i've seen this scene so many times and i always forget who is the thing and when that jump scare is coming and it takes me by surprise every time and i think that's why this scene always feels like you never know who it is because there are some characters at this point that i feel like i've never seen before and <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh hold on oh they exist oh shit okay so it could be and that's why they don't really ever come into my consciousness because unless it's like childs or you know the sort of the captain i'm always a bit like oh it's that guy that sort of slipped underneath the radar Mm. he's a bit familiar so i think that's what's so clever is that they have enough characters for you to feel like you know this gang and you know what's going on with them but then also just a couple too many for you to um pinpoint every single one of them as being like iconic i suppose in their own way and i think that actually works to the film's favor definitely yeah agreed and and also knowing who is where and when because yeah. it's like are they all together at this point is somebody missing has somebody gone out is somebody you know like it's really hard to keep track of of all of these characters particularly if you're trying to list all the kill scenes so that was kill number eight that was palmer who in the blood test turns out to be the thing so obviously that means he's dead you were the only one that could have got to that blood we'll do you last and he has that gross moment in the chair where he starts to kind of freak out his head opens up and then we have another kill straight away dan any ideas who the next kill is at that point straight after palmer so palmer uh, who's tied to the chair his head starts to split open and then another person is is offed oh gosh um i can't I, I can't remember who no but does the head like bite someone exactly exactly he bites the other guy windows who's next to him so at that point we have our ninth kill windows is offed pretty swiftly after that point (laughs) 
and I'm gonna I'm gonna sprint towards the end at this point really because now we're sort of hurtling towards the end of the film so at this point it's just kind of all out chaos really um, the remaining characters flee the scene and they head over to the sort of helicopter tower to see if Blair the, the guy that they locked up there at the beginning of the film is still in there they discover that he is gone and the floorboards have been taken up and there is a, a sort of secret passage leading underneath the ground under the snow to this kind of alien lair where Blair has been working on a brand new spaceship at this point it obviously confirms that Blair is also a thing and is therefore dead so that makes Blair our tenth kill of the film what is it something he's been making it's a ship of some kind Stole the parts from the helicopter. Smart SOB, put it together piece by piece. Where was he trying to go? Any place but here. So we're up to 10 now. Um, Ali and Dan, how are you feeling about your predictions now that we're up to 10 kills? Uh, it's nice that the film ends after this point. And then <laughs> else exactly, exactly. <laughs> At this point, McCready sort of comes to the realisation that the thing is, is planning on burying itself in the snow and hibernating it again for an indefinite amount of time until another rescue mission finds it. They know that they can't let that happen and they make the heroic decision to make sure that they can take the thing with them. So Mac and the remaining survivors kind of then there's this amazing scene where they just basically burn the place down with sort of Molotov cocktails and blow torches and bombs and sort of blow up the entire place. So everything is just kind of ablaze at this point. But just as they're in the middle of destroying the base, we have another surprise kill. Can anyone remember what the next kill is? Yeah, it's Gary, isn't it? It's the old man. It is. It's Gary. He was the the sort of captain. At this point when they're destroying the base, Blair, or the Blair thing, jumps out, attacks Gary. He kind of buries his fingers into Gary's face, killing him at this point. It is. It's really cool. It's really creepy. And it's it's the closest thing in a way. Well, I suppose it's not. There are a few jump moments, but it really feels like a kind of jump scare. He kind of bursts out and attacks him at this Mm. point. So that is our 11th kill. That's Gary. And at this point, we've got, I think, three characters left. The cook, Knowles, hears a, a noise and he goes off to investigate. And we never see him again. But it's kind of common knowledge and it's widely accepted that at that point, Knowles must die because the whole place is on fire. So I'm going to include that as our 12th kill. So that is Knowles, the cook. He dies off screen, but he dies. How's it coming in there? I said, how's it... And then we are at the end of the film. Childs is for some reason missing and McCready is attacked by the thing in a final showdown. And it 
kind of really goes to town at this moment with all the practical effects. It becomes this kind of giant monster with this big old face and McCready is able to blow it up. Ali, do you think that we ever actually see the thing in its purest form? Like, do we know what the thing itself looks like at any point in this film? I almost feel like the thing itself doesn't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, because, because the idea that it's come to Earth in its purest form is a guess on our part. It could be that from its very first instance of life, it was able to sustain its life by mimicking something else. So I like to think that it doesn't have its own shape. The way it exists is by assimilating. And so you kind of constantly are having this evolution of what you expect it to look like. Absolutely. This sort of final showdown between Mac and the thing in all the fire and everything. Dan, how do you think that kind of plays out as the climax of the film? I think it's a very worthy climax for this movie and i mean obviously segueing into the final scene between uh, mac and charles as well mm. yeah i mean it's taken on us on such a ride and then there's that really impressive explosion as well a nice little mushroom cloud explosion of, of the base yeah absolutely it gets pretty epic at this point doesn't it but then the genius of this film is that it doesn't end there then we get this very small sort of chilling moment at the end as a kind of coda and the whole place is burning down mac looks kind of on the brink of death himself childs then appears we don't really know where he's been he re-enters and the two of them sit opposite each other and await their fate and the film just ends and we never know quite what happens to either of them rihanna is childs the thing do you think <laughs> at that point i knew you were gonna ask me this i was thinking <laughs> there was such a simple way to test this there's like a fire burning really close to them and all they need to do is just both put their hand through the fire briefly and then surely that would reveal the thing if it was in either of them they don't do that uh so <laughs> my sort of optimistic heart says that they are both human at this point but i know that's not how horror films work so <laughs> um, it's it's very possible the child has become the thing ali what are your thoughts on this final moment of the film well i can't help but think about the production side of it and i know that they scripted and maybe even filmed multiple endings and I know that they filmed, or at least, like I said, they scripted um, something that was a bit of a Hollywood happy-go-lucky ending where they both get rescued. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there might have been an alternative to that where they get rescued, but they're actually both the thing. Nice. And so the idea is that they're going to infect the world. But I think that this ending is, I'm so glad they went with it because it's so much more compelling. It's so much more in keeping with the entire tonality of the film as well. I feel like if you'd had something really positive at the ending or even something outrightly negative, it wouldn't have encompassed what, this journey we've been on, this journey of, you know, questioning things constantly. I feel like leaving us with a question is the most appropriate thing to do. There's also that little theory about how uh, in the shots of Mac, you can see his breathing and you can see his hot breath in the cold air. But then when you have the reverse shot of Childs, there's basically no breath oh yeah yes there's no breath i don't know if, if there's any truth to that but it certainly adds to yeah. it i love it it's so good i just want to say to finish as well that when this film was released it was really really panned i mean it was trashed by critics and it just it, it was a complete flop but I think it's safe to say that that opinion has changed over time, right? I mean, I don't think it's probably not an exaggeration to say that it's now considered one of the greatest horror movies ever, right? Ali, would you kind of agree with that? Yeah, the world just wasn't ready. Yeah. I think that's what it was. I think it had a lot of heavy competition. It came out in an era of E.T. Yes, the same time. time. So, yeah. so I, think, I think it's just sometimes 
beautiful, perfect films like The Thing. They fall into these moments in history and their release when, like I said, the world's just not ready for them or political things at the time are happening. And so audiences aren't responding in, in a certain way. Um, and so I think to giving it a few years between now and its release, it's just had the opportunity to grow and to be exposed to new audiences. And it's just taken on a new life. It's evergreen in that it, it has these running themes that still feel relevant to an audience, no matter what time they're watching it, no matter, you don't have to be in Antarctica to feel for these men, right? No, you could be in lockdown. <laughs> you could be locked down all around the world and be worried about another kind of virus. You're so right. It can just, any lens works really, doesn't it? Amazing. Well, there we go. So our final kill count, according to me at least, was 12. So it was bang in the middle of all of your guesses. You, Ali and Dan went 10, Rihanna went 14. It was 12. You did tell me you were going to be counting a dog. So... No, I said I'm counting no dogs. I'm, I'm only counting people that die. I know, and then you changed your mind. You moved the parameters, but it's fine. <laughs> I'm going to be a graceful loser in this. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the problem is, is that if I counted dogs, um, go we up. don't exactly know how many dogs died. Later on, there's a moment when Blair actually kills all of the other dogs in the kennel. So it could be up to like another 10 kills if we include dogs as well. So <laughs> it's easier just to not. <laughs> so I guess that gives me another point does it so it's three two two oh it's getting close guys oh it's hotting up it's hotting up <laughs> amazing okay cool before we wrap up is there anything i've missed anything that anyone wants to add in about the thing just just a shout out to keith david that's oh, it oh keith oh my god that's yes it. what a hero what oh, a hero keith. yeah and then i i, I only realized <laughs> whilst watching it that obviously he went You're on right. and uh, did uh they live with carpenter like a little while later i don't know why that didn't click yes. in my brain but yeah keith david that's it. <laughs> That's it. That's all. Love it. Thank you so much for joining us for another death by death breakdown of a classic horror film. For more Kill Count content, check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Kill Count Pod. You can also watch tons of great horror content on Fear, the home of horror on YouTube. All links are in the show notes. Kill Count Podcast is hosted by Dan Yakuno, Mike Munzer, and Ali Penelope. Produced by Jake Cunningham, Jake Yard, Ali, Dan, and Mike. Edited by Jamie Maisner, Charlie Grace, and Joe Bond. Artwork by Ogna Dereshkevichuda. Okay, and if you're still listening at this point, we have a little post-credit treat for you. Dan is bringing us this week's horror haiku. Take it away, Dan. Thank you. I'm going to continue the trend of people complaining that my haikus are too simple and easy to guess. <laughs> so <laughs> here we go. Chris Finch worships God. Hide your kids and hide your wife. Beware Black Philip. Oh, I love it. Oh, man. I love it. That's a beautiful haiku, Dan. Yeah, it was. Thank you. Do we have any guesses? Rihanna, do you want to take the first guess? Yeah, well, I feel like I've actually already mentioned this film. I think it's The Witch. You have indeed. Yeah, we've come full circle. We've come full circle. When you mentioned it at the beginning, I was like... <laughs> I've got to say, I think Black Phillip is the best thing about that I film. I agree. <laughs> Me and Rihanna do argue about this film quite a lot because it's one of my all-time favourites and you just found it really dull, didn't you, Rihanna? So I yeah. did, apart from those Cabbage Patch children and um, like... <laughs> <laughs> awesome.
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.